0: Before we start the show today, we are rapidly approaching 400 episodes, and we would love to hear your thoughts. Whether you've listened to the show once or 400 times, we'd love if you could leave us a review. Find us over on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast supplier, and leave us a review and a comment. Uh, We do love reading those reviews. Okay, on with the show. From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you, on its two-year anniversary, open banking passes more than a million customers, shake-up at RBS as Exec steps down, and BlackRock is to shift away from fossil fuel investments. All this and much, much more on today's show. Before we get started, I have some super-duper awesome news. So today, 11FS found out that we are in the final for not just one, but two categories in the 2020 British Banking Awards. That is pretty damn good news to start the year. Last year, we took home Consultancy of the Year, which was super-duper cool, although I did have to walk onto stage listening to Ricky Martin, which was not really on brand for me. But actually, now I love that jam. Like, it just gets in my head.
1: I think Um, you just go with it.
0: Yeah, I did. Like, I was living the Vida Loco. (laughs) All right. We really, really, really want you to uh, get out there and vote for us. It only takes a couple of minutes. And uh, if you really want to justify me putting on a suit again to go and pick these things up, which is punishment in itself, then please head over to bit.ly forward slash 11FS award. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash 11FS award. Uh, I very, very, very much appreciate it. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 395 of FinTech Insider. My name is David Breer, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Sarah Kachansky. How's it going, Sarah?
1: It's good. I feel like it's been forever since I've done one of these. I've, I've been... Away from the news for a while. It's Where going. have you been, Sarah? Come back. <laughs> no more exotic, just doing really exciting client stuff, I'm afraid.
0: Oh, yeah, big tease, you. <laughs> All right, as always, uh, we are not alone. We're joined by some super awesome guests. Uh, making his FinTech Insider News debut, we have Zhao Zhu. Did I get that right? Yes, absolutely. Nailed it. Investment manager at Octopus Ventures. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. How's it going? How's your week been? It's going all right, thank you. Yeah, pretty busy as always, but uh, good. I mean, has your year started with like just, I expected to at least get like a couple of weeks in and be able to like find my feet, but like, how's it been over at your place?
2: Um, No, not really. When people need money, they need money. (laughs) And they need it yesterday.
0: January 1st, knocking on the door. That makes sense. All right, well, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, making their welcome return uh, visit f- to Fintech Insider, we have Megan Kaywards, Managing Director at Barclays. How's it going, Megan?
3: Good. Thanks for having me on again.
0: I mean, you've been busy.
3: Yeah. No, I've been very busy in multiple ways. Uh, but yeah, no, it's good to be back. I always enjoy being on these shows with you guys.
0: Well, and thanks for coming in. Uh, I mean, yeah. you've publicly said that you're... Having a baby, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, I saw yeah, you, you yeah. posted snaps I, and stuff. So, I mean, yeah. when I said, you've been busy, <laughs> for everybody who didn't see that, I looked down at a bump. <laughs> you uh, know, I was
3: like, do I just come out with, like, everyone? I'm pregnant. <laughs> but yeah, no, I tweeted about it, which was also a way I informed most coworkers. So great. Twitter was, like, the channel of announcement, yeah. It,
0: yeah, comms. It's, I mean, it's pretty much how I do everything as well. But yeah. welcome back, I thanks for yeah. coming over. Have thanks. you got one of those cool, like, badges on the tube of, like,
3: yeah. yeah? Yeah, you know, in the U.S., they only have those for cars, like baby on board. So it kind of, you know, the the little two bag yeah. that you put on. Yeah. But they'll have that where you can stick it on the back of your car. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of feel like a bus when wearing it, but <laughs> I go with it since now I'm like in my third trimester, like properly pregnant. Yeah, and it's the only excuse you'll
1: ever get to be like, please give me that seat. Yeah. <laughs> like, please, please em- move. I'll fall it. on you if you don't.
3: So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and last but
0: by no means least, we have Olivia Vinden, who is the head of innovation over at Alpha FMC. How's it going?
4: Very good. Loving the new studio. Looks excellent.
0: It's all right, isn't it? I mean, the audio is much better as well. It doesn't make me any better, but it definitely makes the audio a little better. All right, guys, let's get on with what's been going on in the news. So this week, first story we have over on Finextra. It is open banking surpasses 1 million customers. So on the second anniversary of open banking in the UK, new figures show that the number of users has doubled in the past six months. Uh, 3rd party service providers have also doubled, which, I mean, might account for the numbers change, I guess. Uh, In 2018, there was about 100, now there are, over 200, filling about 200 million monthly requests. So this is good news, right? You know, everything that's been sort of going on and the, all the work that the CMA9 have been doing, you know, good news story, Sarah?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had a bit of a dig into this. So I actually wrote a, a blog post on the two-year anniversary of, of Open Banking, and I, and I went back and, and sort of had a look into some of the OBIE's figures. Um, that one million uh, user figure is actually just CMA9 customers, um, which is interesting, Um it doesn't specify whether that's people who are actually using open banking or people who have signed up to open banking-powered services through the CMA9 but may or may not also be using screen scraping. So it's a little bit of, a, of an interesting figure. Also, well, million isn't actually that high in two years when you consider how many people use those banking apps. Mm. Um, so in my mind... Um, it's it's a good it's a good sign, but I think things are really actually going to take off this year. I think what we've seen the last two years um, is that the infrastructure players have done really really well. The true layers of this world, the Tinks of this world, we'll get onto them a bit later. You know, Plaid um, actually arguably isn't really in the UK yet, but you know, it it is playing very much in the same space, um, and those guys have done incredibly well, and they needed to to get the infrastructure in place for us to now start seeing some of the innovative services on top. I would say that the CMA nine have actually quite struggled in the last two years. I think it's been quite painful for them. Um, I think they've sort of suddenly started to realise that perhaps the best way to do this is with the help of those third-party players. Um, and I think that now they've had that realisation, now those third-party players are, have really found their feet and um, people like Visa are on board as well. I think we're really going to start seeing more innovation this year and of course, the way you get customers to use open banking powered services is by giving them services they want to use um, and things that do things differently and things that do things better. Um, so I'm really excited to see, I really want to have this conversation this time next year because I want to I want to see that kind of like uh, growth chart, you know, go straight up now.
3: Yeah, for sure. I think it's interesting because last year, uh, you know, if we rewind 12 months, the conversation was quite critical on open banking. Like, oh, you know, it hasn't really had the effect that we wanted. Is it going to be successful? And I found it all quite odd because the API eyes. Uh, You know, they're the plug and cable between two different pieces of software to talk together and share data. But you have to build the APIs first in order for another company to then build on top of them. Just by virtue of them launching doesn't mean that automatically they'll be able to be used. Um, But also there was quite a few delays uh, with the implementation of them. So there was a number of delays. Once you build the API, then the companies are able to build on top of them, build new business models. Uh, There was also criticism saying most people don't know what open banking is. I'm like, well, of course, people don't know what APIs are. but It doesn't matter. Actually, yeah. I think that's completely asking the wrong question. Yeah, 100% because people care about the utility of the service. They care about having things delivered to them uh, better, faster, more seamlessly, and then they'll appreciate it, but they're not going to think of like, "Oh, what a beautiful API implementation between." You <laughs> I know. Mean, I mean, around <laughs> here we have conversations like that. But we're I mean, not we exactly do. normal, so. Yeah, but our, our parents and, you know, the wider world, just kind of like the average person out there uh, not working in this industry. Um, but I think it's a really good sign. I do think that what we'll see next is as this continues to evolve. I think particularly as the authorization flows improve between the banks and third parties, and that's something I know OBIE has been really pushing, I think that will only increase and motivate even more players to look for new and additional services that they can provide. Uh, so yeah, it's a good start, but I think it's, uh, like you say, it'll probably really take off this year and probably over next as well.
0: Hmm. Um, what do you think? Have you seen, I mean, of the people knocking on the door for money, have they? is uh, the open banking sense of that sort of really sort of increased?
2: Um, there's been quite a lot of the last few years, although, uh, I mean, what I'd say is this, right? Um, it's good that that number's going up and not going down and and not sort of staying flat. Um, but it doesn't mean a huge amount to me, I think, right? It's kind of like saying, Hey, we've written a million lines of code, right? Like, great. What does it do? Um, so, you know, I think as Megan says, like lots of the infrastructure is kind of being built out and you need that to be in place before you can do stuff that's truly valuable to consumers and to customers. Um, so, you know, good that, Like, it's kind of happening, but there must be a better measure out there somewhere of um, quality of implementation, I guess, but... um you know, it's quite a hard thing to, to actually quantify.
1: I mean, if people want more stats than the OBIE does publish um, things like the number of successful calls, the, 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 you know, the rate, the number of calls that are made, the number of calls that are successful, um, and they publish that for the CMA 9 um, since, actually since Open Banking was implemented. So if you're like me and you, you love the numbers behind it, then you, you can go and find that. The OBIE is quite open. Um, what I would like to see, though, is outside of the CMA 9. So how many are Starling handling, how many are, you know, Monzo is, is just about uh, starting to play in this space, you know, what's it handling, what's it doing. Um, and that, those kind of things would be really interesting as well.
0: Well, I mean, shortly after this news broke, uh, YouGov yes. released a report, didn't they, talking about, um, it, it seemed like a slightly oddly positioned one where it said only 8% of people in Britain are actually using digital-only mo- banks like Monzo and Starling. So, I mean, that that either they're using it a lot and therefore accounting for an uh, you know, over-indexing on the 200 million calls that have kind of been done, or... Uh, or actually, the spread's actually quite wide in terms of the, the impact from uh, uh, you know from the uh, from the usage perspective. You
1: know? Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> I have a thing about surveys, and I think, you know I'm a researcher. So if you're going to ask a question, ask the question accurately. And the question that was I mean, asked, I thought was, I'd set you off. On yeah, that one, but yeah. <laughs> how, the question was asked was how do you manage your money? Yeah, that's not. Do you use a challenger bank? That's how do you manage your money. So I would actually argue that that eight percent stat is probably eight percent of people who solely use Monzo or Starling, and yeah. there aren't many people in this country who only use one bank, whatever bank that is, or even you know only one bank and one credit card provider. So I think that's a, a slightly misleading stat. I think the um, the two hundred and four third party service providers fielding two hundred million monthly requests. That number feels very low. So if you've got nine banks fielding you know, with a million customers and then you've got 204 third parties only fielding 200 million requests. Um, that to me says quite a lot about the quality of the APIs that are out there and, and also the quantity to a certain extent. But a lot of the third parties that you know, you were mentioning, Z that they kind of want the money. They they built their business models on the premise that they could use the APIs that the banks were being forced to build. And actually, as Megan pointed out, that hasn't actually been possible for much of the last two years because they just haven't been high enough quality. So that's impacted not only those third parties' abilities to, to to succeed, but also the ability of their customers to use open banking. Because if the third party can't provide them the service that they're promising – then the customers are either not going to come or they're going to leave. Um, so that's something that I really want to see improve in the next year is that those third parties can um, rely on the APIs from the banks and, and from whoever they're, they're pulling them from actually in order to deliver their customers a better service. Yeah. yeah
2: I mean, even last um, last week, you know, after the whole sort of Plaid thing, I think I read somewhere that even Plaid, um, like, they only have successful calls like eighty percent of the time or something like that.
1: Yeah, and that's like losing like one in ten of your emails or something. Right. It's <laughs> it's uh, the, the the stats are kind of like somebody put it. Somebody phrased it to me that if if your up time is ninety four if four percent of your calls are successful, that's like losing one in twenty five emails. So, I didn't yeah. that, Goodness. this
3: was really fascinating, though, because this YouGov research was also tied into an Afin Extra article that I read yesterday. That was, uh, you might have seen this. It was incredibly frustrating because it goes in and it says, you know, it looks like only eight percent are using the new challengers. It's actually the incumbents that are benefiting from mobile banking because most people access their, uh, who are accessing mobile banking, are using an incumbent. But I'm like, one, when they say digital challengers like Starling and Monzo have eight percent of the market both Starling and Monzo have been open about their customer numbers and it's like I think Monzo's last report was around 3 million mm. Starling mm. is 1 million you have 48 million adults in the UK that's 8.3% so you know I mean <laughs> like obviously it's like not like Starling and Monzo like what other
0: Starling plus Monzo digital yeah.
3: <laughs> only retail fully licensed banks could have actually got into that
1: the likelihood so, of people thinking oh well I use Revolut or I use Monies or yeah. I use Pocket you know they, they they don't count them as challengers.
3: Yeah, but then also to be fair, so Starling uh, launched as a bank first, but that was May 2017. So in less than three years, the challengers have 8% of the market, which to be to your point, most people don't just use one bank. Lots of people have multiple bank accounts, so one, it's still a bit of a skewed view. Mm-hmm. But also, I do think it was a bit too far to say, like, oh, it's only been partially successful. The incumbents are really benefiting from mobile banking because Starling and Monzo only have 8% of the market. Like, that's a little glass half empty. People, 8%, people, yeah. Also,
1: people aren't using Monzo
3: for open banking as well. It yeah. was a very strange, slightly tenuous link. I can
1: understand it yeah. slightly more with Starling, but I don't think most people who pick Starling as a provider or switch entirely to Starling have done so because of the marketplace I think it's a value add but I don't think that's their primary driver I, I mean
0: I, I completely agree with that Megan it's uh, I mean I've said this I think on uh, the podcast before but it's like 30 years for first direct to get to a million customers it took three years to get to where we're at <laughs> you know that is a whether whether you sort of count them as like fully fledged customers and all the vibes or uh, whether it really means the same thing that that mm-hmm. that change in the market is exponential isn't it but, yeah so, what, What do you think? I mean, this is a, is it because? Uh, companies are not providing the right services or is it just the point they're right in the cycle?
4: I don't think so because over Christmas I converted my parents onto Starling with a joint bank account and they are so happy with it. They Uh-oh. think it's amazing versus their old-fashioned banks. So I, I, I don't think so. I think it's just going to take time for them to grow. And I think the integration point that you made is exactly right because I've, I, I'm have I a Starling customer and I've used three of the integrations and they're always quite clunky and it's not always Starling's fault because at some point, for example I used their um, Habito mortgage integration. At some point the use case was that Habito had to telephone me and that's because mm. of the regs. So there's nothing really Starling or Habito could have done about that. So I think making all of that a bit more seamless is is will will drive adoption of it. And then also in my world, which is more on the investment side, there's this big drive for open investments, open tra- open finances in general. And when data starts to get much more complex about it's not just your cash balances, but we're also now exchanging what are your savings, what's your debt, the APIs and all of that reg process Mm -hmm. needs to get way, way smoother for Mm -hmm. it it to work seamlessly.
0: I mean, on that, I mean, integration is somewhat of a broad church as you say. I mean, I remember you saying a lot Mega, before, it's different different people at Starling are integrated in very different ways, aren't they? Somebody like Flux is integrated in a very different way than somebody like... uh, uh, habito, as you say. So.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, a variety of in- integrations. Some where they're deeply integrated into the app, accessing like end-to-end within Starling, uh, or other applications, just APIs. Generally, you can have a deep integration. Um, or you can have those where it's purely accessed externally. So uh, someone like Tail, which is similar to Flux, where they're giving you uh, loyalty and rewards cash back, uh, but it's completely external to the application. They're just purely pulling information from one app externally. Then you have others who are sharing data in. that's a two-way data flow. But there's multiple different types. So it's actually, uh, yeah, it's a bit more nuanced than it looks like on the surface.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, this one's going to, I mean, this time next year, Sarah, where will we be?
1: Oh, I'll be back writing another blog post, I'm sure. Where, I, where we'd like us to be is for us to be able to talk about all the exciting services that have taken off and actually done good, useful, interesting things for people and ideally businesses as well.
0: All right. Well, let's come back in next year then, eh? Absolutely. I mean, don't leave it till then to come back on the podcast, do anyway, obviously. <laughs> Next up, we have a story over on the FT. This is Bo Chief Executive to step down. So Mark Bailey is expected to leave the bank on or before February 14th. Valentine's Day, right?
1: Also when RBS is going to release its results. Ah, okay. I don't know if the two are linked. Mm,
4: mm.
0: Interesting. I mean... Odd thing to do on a date, (laughs) read RBS's (laughs) report. All right, that's when its parent RBS is going to be releasing its full year results, so the big boy ones as well. So RBS CEO uh, Alison Rose is likely to be making additional changes to a senior executive team. Uh, Specifically, the bank will be seeking to hire a uh, chief executive of personal banking and a chief marketing officer. Bailey re-entered the RBS fold in 2010 and became its chief operating officer six years later. The news comes less than two months after Bo, the project that he's been working on exclusively, launched in the UK. Really, sort of interesting timing of this one, I guess. I mean, there's RBS, I guess, have been in sort of a bit of a sort of a state of flux for a few years, really. Since since Ross really sort of announced that he was moving out and uh, going back to Australia, I guess the senior leadership. Contest has been sort of kicking off, but I mean, I guess specifically two months after launching uh, a challenger internally. uh, If this was an external, um, you know, if this was Tom Blomfield or Anne leaving Starling or Monzo, um, it would be a really, really significant thing because the the founder drives the story. Um, What do you guys kind of think about this one?
1: So, I think I, I agree with you that the founder drives the story in those examples you gave with with um, Starling and Monzo. But I do also think that if you have done your job right as a founder and a CEO, then you should be able to leave and the business should continue to be a success without you. I think... Um, you know, the job of the CEO is is to build the business, to encourage it, to hire brilliant people to help them run it because as you know, David, you can't do everything yourself much as you would
0: much as you would like to. I can't help <laughs> but feel like she's telling me to leave. <laughs> well, that I
1: is am. that is not where I was going. Yeah. <laughs> My point being that I think um from a from a Bo perspective, I think you know, if, if he's done his job well and I don't know the ins and outs of how the company works and, and its metrics and how well it's done since it's launched, but if he's done his job well, then it shouldn't really matter to Bo. Um, it should continue to, to operate you know, the captain should be able to step away and the ship should still keep going forwards.
3: I don't know. I think it depends on the CEO because I really do believe that some CEOs are uh, a channel of the lifeblood of the organization. And if you remove that one individual, it actually has a very massive effect. Yes, um, Sarah. Well, i'm yeah, going nowhere, like, right imagine if david i love david's reaction when you said that because <laughs> he was just so like visibly it, taken aback like, took oh, it very personally like, i'm
0: not gonna lie. it's been a that? tough day it's been <laughs> yeah. a tough well,
3: day. well i may never be yeah. on the
1: podcast again that may be <laughs> yeah. it
3: but it's hard to say like was this a passion project of his was it something more that the company was rallied around and he made most sense as the leader and so it was more of like an assignment uh i think those are the nuances you can't know unless you're more in the details um, but I will say it, it does seem like from externally that between Allison and Mark, they did have that kind of rivalry leading up to Ross's departure. Allison has obviously stepped into that role. Um, but also, there's just like a wind of bad luck for COOs going around, right? Because the HSBC COO, he's yeah. out now.
0: Andy Maguire stepped aside yeah. recently. Yep.
3: Yeah, Starling COO stepped aside. Um, there's lots of uh, COOs on the out. So mm-hmm. I don't know what that's. Signaling, but I mean, I mean, marks in good company. Well, I was going to say
0: it's going to be really interesting to see where those guys land for this. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I agree with your point. I think um, you know I see that as my job, not wanting to make this a, just about me and you, Sarah. Uh, but <laughs> but actually, it, it, for 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 many reasons, I think almost like the beginning of a company is so important because it's. Um, Two months into the public launch of something, it's in its absolute infancy. But I, I think this is maybe the the major difference between a corporate challenger mm. and a challenger challenger, which is um, so much is tied up in the the founder story when you're you know when you are Anne or, or Tom mm-hmm. or whoever. Whereas actually mm-hmm. in a corporate organization, it's it's actually quite difficult to create that. Um, that that, uh, challenger sort of momentum around it. I think that corporate story is actually the
4: really interesting angle on this because I don't understand how within that bank they could have given the green light to bow and also to metal to build totally separate tech stacks and different marketing approaches and everything just it just seems profligate i don't understand why that would be their strategy so i i wonder whether the, there's something behind the scenes on on that happening yeah i mean
0: i, I mean, I, I don't i don't uh, i mean obviously we were in, involved in 11fs were involved in the uh, building of the the uh, the challenge on the other side from a metals perspective so from my perspective i don't see that as as necessarily a problem i mean Red car, blue car, kind of project style stuff of what will get to market quicker and ultimately what will be more successful. When you're a you know a such a it feels like we would company. have had so
4: many shared components though. I, I don't know.
0: I imagine, <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, it's it is an interesting point. I mean, it's interesting to think how many of those types of projects in big organisations you never see. Mm. You know how many of them are started but never get to market. So actually, to RBS's credit, the fact that they've started two and they've got to market with both of them is. Probably quite rare. Yeah, uh, I,
1: I think it's interesting your point about like um, the personal story because. You know uh, Anne and, and Tom and uh, you know Norris from Moneys and um, you know Nick from Revolut are all are all free to tell their story. They're all free to to say you know in Anne's case, oh well, I was working in the big Irish banks and I just hated the way they were doing it, so I decided I was going to do it differently. You know Tom has a has a similar story. Um, I I don't know, and I'm, I'm genuinely curious how free Mark Bailey would have been to say I was really fed up with the way RBS was doing it, so I wanted to go off and do my own thing, and RBS you know uh, in their wisdom saw it. Or whether he'd be allowed to say that, whether that's even true, whether it's a case of you know here is a project um, we'd like you to manage the project. I think I think that's really interesting because he in a way he kind of almost has to be a step more removed than what's a co-founder starting out completely on their own under a separate umbrella would be because. He's got to be tied by what he can say mm. B- because mm-hmm. of the organization that he, he
0: still ultimately works for. But I guess, I mean, even even on that, though, speaking in our context, I mean, if you go back and listen to, um, you know, we've had Alison on a number of times onto the podcast. Actually, if you go back and listen to what she said about her, you know, the origin of metal, it's like unless we set out to challenge ourselves, we're just waiting for somebody else to do it to us. So so that, I mean, I've, I've heard Mark speak. Publicly and privately about that, and it was very much about um, you know a, a kind of a pride in fixing a, fixing a company that he was really passionate mm-hmm. about. So, and I think both in their man Alison, uh, him and Alison, you've got people who do care about the company. But it's it's interesting that I mean in in any sort of political race, it's like. Uh, I wonder if the first thing you do when you're really starting to change the bank is look at all the people who probably run against you and everything that went there, which is just—I mean, it's just sort of smart and you would expect it, right? Mm-hmm. So the other thing that comes to mind here, um, and this may be sort of grossly unfair, uh,
2: is—it sounds like it's going to be fun, yeah, <laughs> right. um, you know, sort of the, the, the sort of the other corporate digital bank uh, over in the in the US. And uh, I read a stat that I think about fifty percent or more than fifty percent of the clients or the customers that Finn got were actually existing Chase clients. Mm. Um, and it
1: still it still still died a death.
2: Yeah. Um, so, you know, without looking under the hood, it's, it's very hard to sort of really know what's going on.
0: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, if you look at the Finn, the Finn example, I think what happened with Finn was um, it, it inherited the culture from the parents. So it, it, didn't, uh, it didn't have the ability to really change in the way that it, it sort of needed to change. So to your point, it was just a smaller version of the other thing that appealed to exactly the same people and you know just didn't really sort of move forward yeah. and that's that's the challenge here is if you if you truly are trying to sort of challenge yourself then actually you've got a it's got to be a new technology capability it's got to be a fundamental different culture in terms of what you're setting up and if it's mm-hmm. not those two things it's a very expensive sort of foray into innovation stuff isn't
3: yeah. it I'd say um Anne Bowden has this excellent uh, kind of overview for why she started starling and it was partially because she had this vision for what was possible. But given her senior leadership role in uh, the bank that she was in previously, she felt like it wasn't possible to achieve it there because of not only the legacy technology, but the legacy culture. Mm. And I imagine, uh, you know, for Mark and for Allison being in that, there is, and for J.P. Morgan with Finn and all of these other examples— Uh, You know, within this legacy culture, there are different ways of working. There are different risk frameworks. Uh, There's this fear of, like, organ rejection for the new thing. Finn seemed to over-air on, like, let's make sure it completely uses the legacy technology and is tied in, has stakeholder support. Seems like, they really went deep on that. Mm. Uh, But then as a result, like, yeah, it's completely embedded, and you're getting a lot of your own customers moving over to it. But then, you know, it doesn't actually have better user experience. People aren't loving it. You're not attracting new users. Like, are you really hitting your goals? So I think, um, to your point, actually, whenever these uh, institutions take on a project like this, it's really uh, important to be clear. It's new technology, but it's also new ways of working. You have to kind of balance those two things as you start to, mm. to kind of approach the project.
2: I'd go a step further, right, and say that, um, you know, you can often find – you can often predict how successful a project like this is going to be uh, by trying to figure out if, you know, whoever is leading it was told, your job is to kill the existing business. Mm-hmm. Right, that's what that's what uh, Jeff Bezos, mm. you know, famously said to the guys who um, did Kindle. Your job mm. is to kill the Amazon book business. Wow! Right, and put them three miles down the road or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to have that sort of mentality if you're going to really change, because otherwise the incentives come in, and incentives are stronger than almost yeah. anything else. You know? Hundred yeah. percent. There's a there's a
0: you know to your point, Megan. Really, mm-hmm. the immune system is wait, that's my PNL. Yeah. And actually that is really strong in a big organization. And actually the As it I mean, should be, by the way. I think it's right. I think it's always the I mean the point around the sort of um uh, innovator's dilemma, it's like it's great to be innovative, but then it really screws with your existing business model. And if that happens, you find chief executives can get swayed really, really quickly by somebody who owns a very big PL. So, yeah. uh,
3: Actually, there's an interesting kind of a anecdote. I recently met with the Werner Vogel, who was the um, the one who led the build of AWS. So really famous Amazon CTO, brilliant guy. Um, and he was talking through how they set up the team, and he was mentioning that within a legacy organization, you're going to have some really talented people people. But if you only um, even bring in internal people onto the project who have the right skills, you're missing part of it because it's also about a mindset and a culture of being entrepreneurial and being willing to do things differently. Um, And I I think that's quite true in this case that with Amazon, I, I think that's interesting that they're like, okay, if your job is to kill the existing business, but then kind of paired with people like Werner who are actively saying, uh, we can bring along people from the existing business, but they just have to share that mindset. Mm. So it's a, yeah, an interesting balance to straddle.
0: 100%. I hope nobody in any HR department gets a scare when people take that very literally as well. But, <laughs> uh, all right. Next up, another challenger. So a uh, story over on Yahoo Finance. This is Revolut announces new savings accounts. So the challenger has partnered with Flagstone to offer the Savings Vault. The product boasts a 1.35% interest rate uh, and is FSCS protected, up to £85,000. Customers aren't subject to minimum deposit amounts. They can withdraw the money at any time and they receive interest payments daily. We managed to talk to Revolut Director of Global Marketing and Communications, Chad West, about what's going on. Say from him now.
5: So, yeah, super exciting news. Uh, So today we're launching uh, Savings Vaults. Uh, This is initially available to our metal customers in the UK. Uh, And what this means is we'll be able to add on uh, 1.35% interest rate onto our customers' vaults balance. Now, this will be for a limited uh, period of time, but I think... What's most exciting is the fact that this is completely flexible. Uh, It means that it's easy access, which means people can withdraw um, at any point. Uh, There's no minimum uh, balance and equally interest is paid daily as well. Um, I think from a more flexibility perspective, people can simply uh, transfer their existing vault into a savings vault uh, in a matter of seconds and then start building that interest uh, straight away. Um, for those who aren't sort of aware of what our vaults feature are, it's essentially um, a separate savings wallet where you can round up every card payment you make uh, and put, pop your spare change into your vault, but you can also set it up so that you can set up a regular standing order uh, or pay directly into it. So I think savings rates have been absolutely minuscule Uh, not just here in the UK, but across Europe for so long. So I think this is a great way for us to um, provide our customers with greater value. Uh, And yeah, we're super excited.
0: What do you guys think about this one then?
1: oh, I'm not quite sure about it, to be honest. Um, So when the the news came out, it said the product boasts a 1.35% interest rate up to an unspecified limit after that interest will decline on further deposits. And it wasn't very clear what that meant. And I think having just listened to that soundbite, I got a better understanding. So I thought that was for each individual, it was 1.35% up to an amount that they hadn't yet specified. And then you'd get 8% on on every deposit after that. But it sounds like what he's saying is that it's 1.35% until Revolut has X number of deposits across the board, and then they'll reduce the rate, Um, which is what I didn't... I think that's how I now understand it. Um, I... I'm not sure. I see the point of Revolut doing this. I'm not sure how much value it adds. It's um, particularly it's only for like the Revolut Metal customers who are having to pay twelve ninety nine a month. So um, obviously, in and of itself, it's not going to induce you to, to have Revolut Metal because somebody did the maths for me on Twitter and it was something like if it's a zero point five percent improvement on your current savings, you'd have to put in thirty thousand pounds to cover the hundred and fifty annual fees, and it's capped eighty five k. So obviously clearly it's not designed to like be the one thing that brings you into that premium account i see that it very much is designed as a complimentary offering to the other uh, products in their um in their suite there and and that would have been fine the fact that it's capped and the fact that it's limited always makes me go oh. whenever i see people trying to drink bring people in with high interest rates and even then saying up front that they're going to cut them back afterwards i'm like oh, but there are so many better things you perhaps could have done there but that would have uh, benefited a wider range of customers and perhaps had, you know, uh, brought more customer satisfaction. Um You know that said, it is a very complimentary offering. It's the one thing that Revolut was kind of missing. If you look at their suite, they've got a very broad product suite, particularly under metal. There's a lot in there, Um, and for those people who are using metal, you know, every day to do the unlimited FX trades and all that kind of thing, I'm I'm sure it's a really nice sort of little value add to have on the side. Um, I just, I just think that perhaps it was the way it was presented; could have been done slightly differently. Sorry, you yeah, it. I mean,
2: I just wonder how much of this is like a revolute thing versus a flagstone thing, right mm. um uh, so, you know, Flagstone, there's a minimum, like if you want to get involved in their products, there's a minimum of 250 grand you ought to put up, right? So what, what does
1: Flagstone do? Can you give us a quick overview? Uh,
2: so basically it connects to a bunch of, um, like <coughs> savings accounts. Um, it's a platform where you can put your money on Flagstone and they will help you get into a whole bunch of different savings accounts that can get decent rates. It would also be remiss of me not to mention that Octopus Cash kind of does the same thing and, you know. Oh,
1: and Raisin <laughs> and Hargreaves lansdowne have active savings. Right. So there are other options that do similar yeah. things, yeah. Um,
2: yeah. But, uh, you know, £250,000 as a minimum is like quite a lot of money. And, um, you know, this is sort of one is kind of part of uh, one of my favorite themes in fintech, which is kind of the atomization of investments, right? Um, historically, it's really inefficient to try to get people with like £5 to get to this kind of scale that for, for it to make sense to invest in certain kind of asset classes. Um, and now, you know, this is yet another um, one of, of enabling people with, with sort of less capital to be able to put at risk to um, go into products that are more attractive, right? And this is happening across the board with private markets and also public markets as well. Um, But the reason I think it might be more of a flagstone thing is, one, uh, you know, it is, like, limited, right? Mm -hmm. And they haven't said how much is limited to, right? Which suggests to me that sort of just... They'll wait and see. They'll see how much uptake it gets uh, and sort of see what the margins look like and then, and then they'll make a call on it. Uh, and the second piece is that, you know, it's just more distribution, right? Like the, the number of people with that much money to be able to bandy around is uh, you know, limited and there's a lot more cash flowing around in the economy. So, you yeah. know, to be able to access people with less assets um, and go into those kind of products makes a bit of sense.
1: It does make sense, although it looks like all the money is then deposited with Paragon Bank. I didn't catch that. Yeah, bit. so uh, from from the, the 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 piece that I read said so that funds in the savings vaults are, are deposited through Paragon Bank. So I'm not quite sure where it ends up. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's just like there's lots of different reporting on this, um, but I I do see your point about the distribution. It's also worth bearing in mind that when Monzo launched their partnership with Investec, which I can't remember quite what the interest rate was, but it was pretty good and it had a minimum of a thousand pounds. They ended up having to close it down after six months because Investec just said we can't we can't take any more mm. deposits. You know, this is too popular. I mean, it's it's um, an in-
0: interesting as you say on that. Uh, that sense, just the uh, user behavior that might change from Mm. Revolut's perspective. I mean, if they start seeing balances being so much more sticky than they were when there was no interest rate, then it actually gives them a, you know, from a product roam up, perspective, either a more strategic relationship with an organization or potentially, you know, something that they build themselves, right?
1: And it's more, sorry, I was going to say, and it appeals perhaps to a wider audience because of what Revolut offers a lot of at the moment is uh, trading and investments, Mm. Uh, not a lot of, but if you're in that metal band, that's what you tend to do. For a lot of people, you're like, well, that's too risky for me. I don't have that much money. I'm not going to like buy Bitcoin with it or or start trading. Oh, but a 1.35% interest rate, that feels a and, you know, with FSCS, you know, protection, Perhaps, yeah. and with a bank mm-hmm. that you can go away and look up and see Paragon Bank online and see, oh, well, they have a license. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's trying to appeal to a different audience.
3: Well, yeah. And also, given that they're coupling that with, well, one, no minimum deposits, but two, you can withdraw at any time and you're receiving interest payments daily. Given that they're an e-money license and they can't currently insure deposits, this does kind of allude to maybe a more affluent market, putting their deposits with them, putting it into the savings account, knowing they'll earn some interest on it, and then they can withdraw at any time to use it on. The Revolut card, so maybe it's kind of filling that gap in terms of the customers' need for insurance protection for larger sums to be put with mm-hmm. uh, with Revolut. So, because I know historically they've had more customers, but sometimes have been criticised for maybe not having as much in terms of uh, average deposit per customer. Mm. So perhaps it's also a bit of a strategy to mitigate that for the St- metal customers,
0: sticky balances, eh? Yeah. yeah, I mean, as
4: well, it's a parallel with Atom because you, you see loads of the, the sort of balances in Atom. And they're trying to get that interest rate, and it's people who have got really big cash balances because mm. they're worried about investments, and then they need to get that um, protection across the, the, the different accounts. And so I think they might actually end up with, with some Atom-style money coming into Revolute. Because yeah.
0: Of- I mean, it's like you say, it's sort of open the taps a little bit and see what happens. I mean you've got a bit of a love affair with Marcus, haven't you? And this is pretty much the strategy they pulled as well, right? It's like, interesting rate, see what happens. Ooh, that's a lot. Let's sort of time it down a little bit.
1: Yeah, I I feel like Marcus and I are going through a rough patch, to be honest. Uh, Do
0: you want to talk about it?
1: Has their
4: interest rate gone down since? Well, the
1: interest rate has has gone down um, quite significantly. Um, It's gone from 1.5 to 1.35. But then they launched their app in the US. And and to be honest, my my, um, fully informed 10 years in fintech analyst reaction to it was, meh, I don't know. Yeah. Why it's, so? Um it's it's impulse. If anybody has access to Eleven ms Pulse, can go and have a look at it. It's um it it's not it's, it's not got very many features much feature or functionality. And given it was built by the um, team from Clarity Money, which is a, a startup that Goldman Sachs had bought, um, who specialise in personal financial management and interesting analytical tools and and you know that kind of behavioral nudges and, and helping you improve your financial behavior it shows none of that it shows it's pretty much exactly a digital version of their website Mm. um and user experience isn't even that great so there isn't much more in the way of functionality and when you actually use it you might as well just use the website given that the market savings account is supposed to be a savings account that's pretty much all it does or a loan you don't need to access that every day so why have an app unless the app is going to bring additional value And, and i don't think it does um that aside, <laughs> the the strategy of of paying a high interest rate to bring people in and then then lowering the interest rate, yes, we've seen it quite a lot. Um, that's why I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a bit bored of it now. I, I think people are getting a little bit tired of it. I think you know maybe you're better off going with a low interest rate in a particularly. You know uh, uh, some other features and functionality on top of it, perhaps some kind of personal financial management, which is adds value.
0: I mean, it's an interesting point you know, the the types of consumers that you get. You know, it's sort of uh, <laughs> particularly in I mean, savings and credit cards. You sort of turn up the turn up the rates, get the rate tarts in, mm-hmm. and then you know you turn down the rates and they bugger off. So it's like I mean, that's it's a it seems like a uh, a, sh- a bad strategy to attract people who are that price pr- uh, price yeah. sensitive. You know,
1: I think I think um, consumers are people tend to forget how price-sensitive consumers are across the board. They still are. I'm sorry, guys. You can have the best user experience in the world. And if it's expensive, people won't use it. If they can't get something for it. One of the reasons that people still give for not moving to Monzo or Starling full-time is that so many of the incumbents' current accounts have cashback. And until Monzo or Starling is going to give them cashback or rewards or whatever that is, they're not going to move. Um so I think the price sensitivity people do underestimate. But I think also this, this price sensitivity fatigue. I mean, in this country, interest rates going up by like 0.5, down by 0.5. You know, on your savings accounts, they're going up by 0.5, down by 0.5. You know, the difference between 1% and 1.35%, if you've only got £2,000, it's nothing.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh. we've all been completely desensitized. It's not like the good old days of cryptocurrency, is it? Like uh, <laughs> we, want, we want some real fluctuations, don't I, we?
1: I remember when my bog-standard savings account had 6% interest. <laughs> oh, man.
0: I mean, if Revolut are doing this, everything they seem to do seem to garner a lot of attention and a lot of users. So, I mean, we'll get Chad on in a couple of months and actually see what happens on this one.
1: Yeah, what will be really interesting. We'll be exactly, as he says, to see how quickly they hit
0: that limit. Indeed. All right. Well, we'll know when they turn it off, right? (laughs) Exactly. All right. The clock is ticking. All right. On that note, we're just going to take a little bit of a break. Before we get back into the show, we wanted to let you know that Finnovate Europe is happening next month in Berlin on the 11th and 13th of February. Finnovate Europe is the continent's premier event focused around live seven-minute demos. I mean, if you guys haven't been to Finnovate and you're in fintech at this stage, I'm really not sure what's going on in your life. Uh, you can network with more than 1,200 senior level executives and gain insights from 150 different experts who will be speaking about what they're going to be up to with their companies. For more information, visit Europe. And if you quote our VIP code 11FS, what else, right? You're going to get 20% discount on your registration. Again, I mean, it's 11FS, right? You're going to figure out what that code is. All right, back to the news. Next up, we have a story over on City AM. This is UK SMEs chasing 50 billion in late payments. Damn, that's a big number. Uh, Banking platform Tide recently reported that UK small and medium-sized businesses are pursuing about five outstanding invoices at any one time. On average, companies devote an hour and a half of this task a day, which is accounting to about 900,000 wasted hours every day across the, the UK. That is mad, isn't it? All right. So late invoicing affected London businesses most often. Self-employed people reported an average of four outstanding invoices at any given time. I mean, this is just terrifying, isn't it? This is, you know, what fundamentally just puts small companies out of business.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the sad thing is that this story isn't a story because I don't think anybody who works in in our industry uh, or indeed works for or owns a small business is surprised by that. Um, I think it's it's been a problem that's been ongoing uh, forever, despite an awful lot of people recently um, trying their best to solve it. You know, you've, you've got people like Market Invoice coming into space, you've got people like I Walker coming into space, I Walker, I know, work with Tide, uh, trying to help people. But a lot of the solutions that are on offer at the moment actually end up costing the small businesses. So they end up having to give away a percentage of the invoice that's outstanding in order to get the cash from that invoice to, to keep their businesses operating as normal. Um, and whilst they understand that that is a, a one solution, it doesn't feel entirely. Fair to me, um, my understanding of this, and I've never run a small business, is that a lot of it's to do with payment terms and how how big companies operate on much longer payment terms than than small companies. Um, also, small companies obviously have uh, much less in the term, uh, much less in terms of resources and capital to draw on if something goes horribly wrong. But I don't know if we're at the point where we need to have some kind of regulatory intervention here because I, I think you're right. I think this is a problem that's been going on forever and ever and it doesn't seem to be getting much better Mm -hmm. I'd be curious
2: sorry go ahead
3: yeah, I was going to say, back when I was working at Intuit uh, in, in San Francisco, they did a set of user research with small businesses, and they found this exact same thing, that in the U.S., SMEs were struggling to get repaid, uh, and they found that one of the reasons was that it was awkward for them, particularly the the self-employed, to follow up with people who owed them mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. say, like, hey, can you, can you please pay me back? I actually really need that money right now. Um, so they built um, in a part of a tool where, effectively, it would just automatically send invoice reminders on certain schedules, and actually that worked. Really well because then it felt like impersonal. The the accounting software was actually handling it. They found it increased repayments and pay, being paid back on time. But it does, to your point, feel like an age old question. It happens here. It happens in other parts of the world. Uh, there's invoice finance solutions. There's you know software that try to to ameliorate that, but it still seems to be persistent.
0: Hmm. I mean, it's it's interesting. I- We've been really lucky at eleven fs is I don't think we've had to chase any invoices the entire of the three year you know three and a half years that we've existed, which is which is weird, but maybe because we work in financial services, therefore they take that shit kind of seriously, don't I, they?
1: I think I think we have
0: you have yeah we've we've had have a few you? of
1: those, yeah that's oh, um, another
0: thing I don't know what's going on <laughs>
1: um the the problem is exactly so Megan said part of the time when you're a very small business you actually don't know who you need to speak to mm. and and within a payroll so say you're you know supplying as a I don't know a boutique yogurt maker and you're supplying to Tesco who on earth are you going to speak to in the Tesco you know uh, invoicing department you speak uh, to a different person every
0: time well I was going to say leverage is difficult when you're tiny isn't yeah. it you know but I, I mean I definitely have seen different industries work very differently I'd say financial services is probably more akin to working with lots of multiple parties, but I mean, in retail industry, I've seen really sort of bad things, because I Mm. think people use, people have very, very almost, I mean, 100 days payment terms, which mm-hmm. if you're kind of working in a, a a very, very small company is almost just crippling. And like I say it kind of puts people into lending and credit and all of these things to kind of get through it. But you you were going to make a point.
3: Yeah,
2: I mean, I'd be curious to find out who's
0: owing the money, right? Um, is the vast majority of it corporates
2: or is the vast majority of other SMEs um, who themselves are sort of getting stiff on the check, right? Mm. Um, and depending on what that mix looks like, there's quite sort of, there's different underlying issues here, mm-hmm. right? So for the corporates, it it is sort of needing to get the invoice approved and sort of going through the IP system and just general corporate stuff that kind of just takes time. Um, but on the other side, it's like when cash flow is your lifeblood and you have so many SMEs who run at such razor-thin sort of margins, mm-hmm. um, everyone's trying to survive, right? Uh, and th- th- there's a real extent to which like, you know, Someone not making it will mean that someone else won't make it, which means that someone else won't make it. So, um, you know, depending on what that mix looks like, there's sort of very different approaches you can take.
0: Yeah. I mean, while we haven't had to, from my perspective, had to like chase anything major, we've definitely had pressure to uh, start work at risk. And that's mm-hmm. a different type of killer, isn't it? It's a because that's at that point you've got nothing in contractual yeah. to you know. There's no like we're going to pay it late. There's a you might never ever get paid type thing. But it's it's all about opportunity cost in some some instances, isn't yeah. it? It's I, like where do you start something because you're you, how confident are you where you're going?
2: And by the way, like people are quite used to it, right? Especially as you get smaller and smaller, like individuals who have a job work at risk. Of the month, yeah. <laughs> you know, every month, um, and and it kind of as you get bigger and able to bully people, you're able to like you know uh, push that to the other side. So it's um it's, it's a power dynamic. Although thing, some
4: of those invoice financing companies now are also doing same day payments, so you can actually just. Sort of give them your salary at the end of the month, but they'll pay you each day in advance of that, so I think even in the personal market there's there's development to totally
0: there. i mean the the quotes from uh, Oliver over at tide are, are, are really interesting where it i mean and and we say this a lot it's sort of nobody really starts a company to chase invoices they sort of <laughs> you know they start an in a company because they're passionate about doing a thing um banking and finance just sort of i, I mean uh, i it, it's it's um, trivializing it to say it sort of just gets in the way but uh you know, nobody starts, a, other than accountants starting accountants firms, nobody starts it to do accounting, do they?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I remember speaking to um, Caroline Plum from Fluidly, and uh, she's a, a serial entrepreneur, actually, but the company, she, Fluidly, that she, she now runs is a, a cash flow management uh, company. just
2: Portfolio Company, actually. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. I,
1: accidental plug. Um, <laughs> but she said to me once, very memorably, she said, you know, you, you're running a company, you're juggling lots and lots of things, but one of those things is a knife. And, and that's the cash flow management. Like, that's the thing that if if you drop that, that is, you know, game over. Um, and it just, it, I mean, that is not her unique experience by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I do think, I do wonder if also it obviously puts people off going into to starting a company. It, it puts people off entrepreneurship. And arguably, we need as much of that as possible. Hmm. I, think I think as well on the, because um, I would go back to my original love of blockchain,
4: that's why there's this great hope of smart contracts that once you've done the work, you just get paid. and Also it's, payout, it's yeah. yeah. Exactly.
0: I mean, half the challenge is, is the, I mean, like you say, from a contractual perspective, it's like meeting those things and whether still somebody at some point has to say that you've met the work to a certain degree, doesn't it? And it, and that gets into, I mean, uh, how, how prescribed you are on contractual terms when you're starting something as opposed to when you really find out what you're doing six months into the thing. You know, so it's a, yeah. it's uh, it's hard all the way through the process here. You either make the contractual process so rigid or you make it so loose. And yeah. it's, a, it's a difficult balancing act. All right, next up, we have a story over on The Guardian. So this is a minister's detailed financial well-being plan. So the Money and Pension Services has outlined a plan to help an extra 2 million people save regularly by 2030 in the UK. It also aims to help an additional 2 million people stop using credit cards for daily spending. So that's 2, more, two million people saving and 2 million people using credit cards less. Same 2 million people, maybe?
1: Hmm. Not sure. That wasn't clear.
0: Okay. All right. We'll come back to that. All right. The plan includes additional measures for financial education and debt advice. M A P S. How are we saying this? Maps also reports that 11.5 million Britons have less than a hundred pounds in savings, while nine million rely on credit cards for everyday expenses. So this is I mean again I think sort of to a point other on like this is not news mm-hmm. I mean the fact that they're saying they're gonna do something about it at some point somehow is I guess the news part in this but um, you know this has been something that I think probably for the last decade has really been sort of spiraling out of control really
1: yeah I mean I, I don't think that the you know what they're, they're saying is anything new as you say I think it's the idea that they're actually trying to outline a plan to, to help people do it um, the slightly disappointing thing in in my mind is that um, that they're not gonna Going to get any like governmental help to do this they're going to try and persuade the private sector to help them do this Um I mean uh you know one of the things I mentioned is is the Renflex system which helps social housing tenants adjust their rates during busy times of the year that is something that's going to come from like local councils but again it's got to be you know local councils who have the time the energy and the resources to implement it and let's face it local councils don't have much of any of those things. Um, I I like the idea of it. Um, I like the idea of encouraging the private sector to do it. I don't know how you're going to encourage the private sector to do it. Um, One example they did give, one really successful example, which I'd like to bring up, is um, Timpson. Uh, So for those who don't know Timpson, they are... um, High street shops that do key cutting, uh, shoe repairs, uh, they do watch face repairs, all that kind of... uh, I'm sure there's a name for that, but I can't remember what the name is for that kind of shop. Anyway, um, they've done very, very well in the UK, but they're also well known as one of the most socially conscious companies in the UK. Uh, For example, they will often take on um, people serving prison sentences um, and allow them to work in their shops whilst they're, they're serving their sentences. And then after they finish their sentence, if, you know, if all's gone well, they, they give them a job full-time and they've encouraged an awful lot of ex-offenders back into full-time work. And once those ex-offenders have given an opportunity, you find that they are far less likely to go on and offend again. What they're doing in this space um, is they're working with the government payroll company Nest um, and they're uh, trialling this project called Sidecar Saving. So basically, um, employees opt in and then contributions are paid into a combined account structure. So what they uh, they first do is they, they take... Um, you, you pay in over and above the auto enrollment for the government sa- uh, pension scheme in this country. Um, and then that's split. So half the money goes into that pension pot and the other half goes into your emergency savings pot. Um, when the balance in what they call the the savings pot, the emergency account, so that I, I can't remember what that's set at the moment, but I think the thing is they say you need one month's salary to, to cover any sort of standard household emergencies. Once that's uh, reached, the savings cap threshold is reached, um, all those contributions then start rolling into the pensions. So it's this brilliant idea that um, when you are, you know, a lot of people have said w- the auto-enrollment pension system in this company might be taking money away from those people who do need to to save for emergencies. You know, what's the point in having it in 20 years' time when I need it tomorrow to pay for a new boiler? This system kind of takes the money, splits it, splits it, splits it, and then you end up having both without having to manage it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um I really like. To me,
4: that seems so dangerous, though, because if you're the kind of person that's regularly spending that emergency money, you're depleting your pension. So
1: you're not, though, because your auto enrollment goes always goes into the pensions. The basic amount for the auto enrollment, it's what you choose to opt in over Over and above that that goes into the savings. Uh, So you're not. You can't pull out of the pensions. But the idea is, say your your uh, auto enrollment um, says that you pull out. I don't know, fifty pounds a month. You say I want to double that, or I want to put one point five that in, and an extra bit is what goes into emergency savings. Right. The idea being that. Because it's taken at that point before you hit your account, it's you're, you're less likely to have spent it. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's the perfect solution. Um, I'm just using it as an example of the sort of initiatives that we have seen that could be really helpful. It's in trial at the moment. They don't
2: know if they're going to roll it out. The thing about Simpson that I think is quite interesting, right, is that it's private. Um, yes. And being a private company, you're able to make certain decisions uh, that, you know, in, in the public markets would affect your share price in a way that, you know, perhaps wouldn't be uh, be too positive, right? Um, so I think it's there's a different set of pressures that you get uh, and therefore a different set of decisions you're able to make uh, as, as management of a business that's private versus publicly
0: traded. I mean, Timpsons are bizarrely innovative. They actually have a, a real program of innovation in their organization, which mm. actually looks at, I mean, they, they sort of don't really think of themselves as, Sort of um, shoe repair people and key, you know, key cutters type <laughs> I feel thing. also
4: like I need to tell you the word cobbler.
0: Cobbler. Oh, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank I just you. thought it was uh, just shoes. Yeah. Uh, couldn't couldn't oh, get there. I think
4: that's just the shoes. But it... there's got to oh, be a fancier okay. name for key makers as well. So. <laughs> Somebody um, tweet us with that, please. But, it's going to be mad. A, but actually,
0: they they see themselves as real estate owners that can leverage that in retail. So actually, they're one of the largest uh, repairers of phone. Uh, broken screens they're Uh using it for all you know so they're actually going through I've used them in a presentation that I've done a couple of times on actually in Norwich where I live the picture of the Timpsons there where it's gone from cobblers (laughs) Okay, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a right thing to say. Me definitely means something different in English, doesn't it? Um, but actually, uh, you know, a-, a cobbler to you know now, you know, over a ten-year period, you know, going back to nineteen you know fifties mm-hmm. when that one first opened to uh, you know repairing iPhones is the majority of actually the things that they're sort of doing. So they do sort of have a tendency, sort of move with the times type thing.
1: I think but- the other one to put into that category is Greg's, by the way. Good. So Greg's that did you know is is very very good at keeping up with um, FMCG trends like fast-moving consumer good trends. You vegan sausage rolled anybody? Huge bump in their share price, vast amount of increase in sales. They said we're going to take half that money and give every employee a bonus. Wow! Um, and, and the point being that these are you know these what I would call socially conscious companies. You say they are private. Actually, Greg's isn't. But yes, uh, you know companies that are doing things off their own back. And I do wonder if the point is we need a hell of a lot more than that. So Empire's saying we've got this great plan is like fab, but actually we need more incentives for the the companies to start launching these things.
0: And more vegan sausage rolls at that point as well. Um, All right, going on to the next story that we have over on TechCrunch. It is Tink raises an additional 90 million. So the latest round will let the Swedish companies speed up its European expansion, and increase product development. It comes less than a year after the company's last 56 million investment. Investors in this round include Dawn Capital, Insight Partners, and a bunch of other people. The company is now valued at 450. Uh, €415 million. Um, Tink's been doing some pretty interesting... I know know we sort of talked about open banking, and Mm. uh, I mean, you foreshadowed this one a little bit, Sarah, but I mean, Tink have been doing interesting things for a while now, haven't
1: they? Yeah, Tink um, did really well. You know, as I said, they are one of those infrastructure players I mentioned earlier. Um, They started off being uh, a customer-facing business. Um, They realized that perhaps that wasn't the way to go because people weren't quite ready for that. They were offering personal financial management tools. Um, You know, direct-to-consumer realized that perhaps... That audience isn't, if your audience in Sweden isn't ready for that, then your audience in the rest of Europe probably also isn't ready for that. So, switch to doing uh, white label uh, product development, which they've they've done really, really well with. Um, They work with a lot of, I think they work with ABN AMRO, but they just announced today as well that they're also working with BNP Paribas. So, they're going to do all of BNP Paribas account aggregation, payment initiation, and PFM. Stuff um, across the board, so I, I think I think there is another success story of open banking. Really,
0: I mean we we live in a we live in a funny old world right now where uh, you know Plaid's five point whatever billion pound uh, billion dollar sort of valuation mm. you know uh, exit. I mean, are they worth four hundred and fifteen million euros?
1: Well, I think if Plaid's worth five point three billion, they probably are.
0: Mm. <laughs> I mean, has Plaid basically? Overinflated everybody's valuation for the next kind of three years, or is I right. mean, it's because it's an interesting one, isn't it? it I, I think there are better teams. Better qualified than these two. But you know, it's it's an interesting sort of mix here, isn't it? Where uh, I mean, the visa purchase was essentially double the valuation of Plaid at the last raise, and actually we're seeing you know a, a further investment here take them to four fifteen. I think the four fifteen is predominantly based on the capital that they've raised rather than necessarily revenue that they're making. So, I mean, it's an interesting model, isn't it? I would have thought, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, uh, definitely, but it's like actually the Plaid piece for me almost starts a bit of a ticker for many VCs who at that end of, I mean, Plaid was eight years, you know, 10-year cycle for funds. I I hope we're going to see more and more of these things where the, you know, exits kind of come and, uh, you know, VCs have the encouragement to start newer, bigger funds. It's pretty interesting, right? I mean, Plaid clearly put a marker in the sand for some of this stuff
2: um, and whether, you know, I mean, what's worth anything, right? It sort of all depends on sort of who who, who it's addressing and what, and what it's worth to them. Um, you know, in the case of Visa being like a network, acquiring another network to remain the main network for financial services, like that's pretty valuable, right? Probably mm-hmm. a lot more than what they paid. Yeah. Um, And, you know, whoever ends up sort of acquiring or or sort of, I don't know if it sort of goes to public markets or whatever it might be for Tink, um, you've got to put it in the context of what they're going to do with it and how it's going to affect their place in the world, right? I suspect like with lots of these businesses, especially if they get to a certain level, I'm not sure if Tink is quite there yet, but once you get to a certain level, I'm not convinced the public markets can sort of support the the kind of valuations that we're seeing. Um, But there are certainly like strategic private uh, companies that can make a lot of use of, out of them, right? I mean, sort of Visa's one, and then you can name the other sort of um, similar companies that will want to be making a play in this space if what uh, if what these guys are doing is going to become important.
3: It appears to be a bit of a, a trend or a convergence, I should say, of two different trends that's really coming to market right now. On the one hand, uh, you have the maturity for APIs, which is links back to what we were talking about earlier. So you see that in the UK, but also in the US, there's an attempt at an industry-led initiative to build out open APIs. But regardless, Plaid is very successful in the U.S. and established there already. Uh, it's popping up in Singapore and Hong Kong and Australia. Uh, with Plaid, that's just one example. But I remember years ago, steve here, the TechCrunch journalist, writing a really good article on TrueLayer and talking about additional uh, players like this, like uh, TrueLayer, SaltEdge, uh, Tink, and others who are really coming to market and quote unquote, selling shovels to gold diggers, I want to say, which um, I thought pretty aptly put it, but it's a maturity of that side of the market. And then you're seeing fintechs increasingly steering towards the rebundling of banking services. So similar to Revolut with the savings account, you're seeing more and more fintechs wanting to pull in lending and savings and insurance uh, and pulling them all into this one hub. So kind of the the maturity of APIs, the rebundling happening, these particular players being very much the connectivity between them, they are getting these very high value. Situations and selling for high amounts, but perhaps it's justified as a result.
0: Mm. I mean, I mean they, they, they're definitely doing innovative things and getting traction. Uh, it's, uh, I think, to your point, value is almost just irrelevant. It's based on what mm. people will pay for something, isn't it? Which is, mm-hmm. which is bizarre. But I think it's, I think there is a. There's a weird level setting that's sort of going on, isn't there? It's going to be amazing to see. It. I mean, the next three years are going to be fascinating in this space in terms of more exits and you know more companies kind of coming to the space to to sort of start um, chiseling away at other bits, isn't it? But that's yeah, actually
1: it's, sorry, I was going to say what's going to be really fascinating in terms of exits is. Um, who buys what next. Yeah. So it's almost like, I mean, Mastercard arguably made the first move with, with Vocalink. Visa's made a move with Plaid. Who, who comes next and with what? And I don't think for a lot of these small companies, the idea of being bought by a, a Visa or a Mastercard or an Amex is in any way problematic. I think, you know, if the, if they've set their sights on an exit, that would do very nicely. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it very much depends on the strategy, doesn't it? Mm. You know what I mean? Because it's, um, I mean, I, 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 like Anne I don't think it's going to be selling to Lloyd's anytime soon, but well, it's like do you know the difference in why people the the st- I will not be selling to Accenture anytime soon. You know, <laughs> there's there's no sort of strategy. Uh, it depends on people's strategy in terms of their exit, doesn't it? You know?
1: and I, but I think to the point that we've all kind of touched on here is the fact that they are infrastructure players mm. means mm-hmm. that they kind of probably are far more willing to go down that route because yeah. they are providing mm-hmm. they are providing that underlying infrastructure, which yeah. which mm-hmm. it makes sense for the big boys to own.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to say if you're a big if you're a big Uh, technology player Mm. right now, it's like you're waiting at the the funnel, kind of waiting to see who gets to that scale or that impact. And then Mm. you have the financial resources to kind of pick them off, don't you? Which is, I mean, both sort of quite terrifying and actually uh, quite amazing time to be sort of building out something that's a tech platform, right? And
3: speaking of Plaid, their CEO, Zach, gives his fintech predictions every year on Twitter. Uh, They're actually very, they're they're really quite interesting. I'd recommend reading through them. But one of them uh, is exactly on this point where he's predicting that there's going to be a shakeout of the mid-stage. So a wave of fintech companies are reaching mid-stage and are at the point that they must raise a make-around, become profitable, or sell. Uh, And then he goes on to say investors are are, uh, waiting longer and waiting to fund the winners. So many of the copycats will likely struggle or sell, which I think is actually probably a fair assessment of the market right now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, the last story we have this week is over on The New Yorker. This is BlackRock to shift away from fossil fuels. So in his annual letter to investors, CEO Larry Fink said that investments, uh, the investment firm will be launching new investment products that screen fossil fuels. Uh, the first change will see BlackRock dumping coal stocks, which account for about one8 trillion dollars in value. The move comes as Goldman Sachs Liberty, Liberty Mutual, uh, Hartford Financial Services Group introduce a new climate policy. It also coincides with the stagnation in the energy sector. Uh, the industry's S&P 500 companies are only gaining 2% in the past decade, which is not particularly good. Uh, BlackRock currently controls 7 trillion dollars, nearly a dime out of every dollar on earth. That is a pretty big uh, statement that they're kind of coming out and saying that they're going to be uh, doing, I guess. I mean, we've talked to a couple of people over at, at BlackRock that says this wasn't, I mean, a, a lot of the things that um, I sort of saw from this was it was a bit um, Christmas Carol vibe. It was like I had a I had an epiphany <laughs> while I was eating mince pies <laughs> and uh, drinking eggnog. And I came back and I thought I'd be a good person. But, um, <laughs> but uh, apparently this has been something that actually Larry has been particularly been pushing uh the organization to uh think about more and more and more over the last three years or so um so i mean what do you think about this is this a uh is this a gigantic organization jumping on a bandwagon, or is this a fundamental shift in actually what the uh sort of conscious uh, buyer will be buying
1: i think it's a bit of both um, I think you would be a fool if right now you weren't making noises towards um, particularly, uh, you know, a, a positive uh, action to, when it comes to, to climate change, um, because I think it, there's so much awareness of it right now, and it's it's hyped across. You know, the Bank of England talking about it, the IMF talking about it, Davos, you know, this week. That's all anybody's. Really been talking about, so I think you know publicly you kind of have to have a position on it, and it's probably probably better if your position is averse to fossil fuels, <clears throat> Australian government. But anyway, um, the other thing is though I don't know I don't know how much actual impact this is going to have. I think it's it's a, I think it's a bold statement from the arguably leaders in the in the investment space. I hope it has a, a big impact, um, but I, I don't know how quickly anything's going to happen, and I, I I don't know how how far-reaching the change is going to be. Mm. I think the interesting thing from BlackRock, because
4: it's just across the board in, in my industry, which is investments, everybody is really hot on ESG right now. Mm. All of our clients are talking to us about it. The thing about BlackRock, because they are largely a passive house, is how much active... Um, ESG activity can you do when you're in an index fund? Because they're following a benchmark, the, there are stocks in that benchmark you have to buy into them. So the very basic way would be to just say, okay, say I'm my benchmark is the S&P 500, take out the coal stocks. But I think the more interesting and nuanced way is like, how can you be more active in your voting or in trying to push those companies to become green tech companies? And that stuff's really hard to quantify then on the data side and to really explain the story. So I think there's 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 loads more to do. It's great. Great, the blackrock have said this, but I think the story on passives and ESG is is, is a complicated one.
1: I think it's also um, just to, to build on the point you made there that everybody has a different definition of ESG of the E, the S, and the G. So you know, uh, E could be ethical or environmental. S is largely social, but you know, again, can be changed. Uh, and G is you know governance and but governmental. But um, even even within those, there are different definitions of what is green, and I'm putting green in air quotes, but you can't say that because of podcast. Um, but kind of those those definitions, I think um, they're problematic because a company can say it's doing one thing, it doesn't really mean anything. And um, that's particularly confusing if you are on the other side trying to be, um, you know, an investor who is, is is being more thoughtful about where they're investing their money. You know, you've got BlackRock saying one thing, Vanguard saying another, Goldman Sachs saying a third thing, Liberty Mutual saying another thing. If they've all got different scales and different ratings what impact does it actually have on me? How does that affect my ability to make a decision?
0: Well, I mean, given the point that I made about actually the, you know, the that particular market around uh, the energy sector actually only gaining 2%, then, I mean, isn't this something that they would be doing naturally anyway, given the fact that it's actually not making the type of returns that they would expect it to be?
2: It's no coincidence, right? And and actually, the interesting number to chuck in there is the fact that the rest of the S&P has done like three times or something at that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, so it's, I mean, is this us, I mean, is this them, Painting a good picture out of something you would do anyway, or do you think it, do you think it's a bit more um, uh, sort of um, active than that
2: yeah I mean it's part of a wider trend right so um, there's a survey that one of our sister companies octopus renewables did recently uh, they're one of you sort of europe's biggest uh, solar investors um, the asset managers they surveyed said that they were going to get rid of uh, 15% of their uh, investments in the energy sector over the next sort of however many years. Right? So it's a, it's a wider trend that people are doing, partly, you know, driven by returns. Um, but in part, I think the the sort of the noise that's being made around this is really important, right? Because if you think about the traditional chain of incentives for some of these like companies and asset managers, everyone's like, well, I'm not shareholder. I'm just doing what's best for shareholders. So I'll carry on like drilling holes in the ground. And the funds are like, well, I'm not, you know, I just make money for my like people to invest in the fund, right? And in the end, there's no like one person who you can ask like, hey, David, do you want me to do more like renewable investments? Like that's <laughs> yeah. not the thing. Is, is this cool? Right? Can I keep exactly. drilling these holes? Yeah. There's no one to ask, right? <laughs> yeah. Because you're a pension fund and you've got like however many people that, you know who sit on the back end of that. But when people as a whole are starting to make noise about it, um, you can be a bit more confident that actually the the underlying investors actually do care.
0: On on a serious note, I'd like that job though. (laughs) If that's a thing and anybody has that vacancy, just let me know.
4: (laughs) I think back to that point about how you actually sort of become active for these asset types. Though is, I don't think any of us want fossil fuel companies that are drilling to become stranded assets, and then they suddenly um, like can't can't e- invest in changing their business models because unless we see a big investment in the renewables space, and in, we we don't actually have a solution to the absence of fossil fuels. So I think having a much more intelligent, less virtue-signalling view of this about how you're going to help transform these companies into things that we need them to be is is probably the more exciting space. But it's so complicated to explain that to, to, to customers. I think in the UK, there's some really cool work happening with the local government pension schemes, like really pushing for this stuff, but in really, really intelligent ways. And so, yeah, definitely have a, have a look at some of those. Uh...
1: Mm. I, th- I think that's really interesting as well, because as we've mentioned a few times on this podcast and a couple of others, is that... Um, people don't actually know what where their pensions are so we, you know we mentioned earlier the brilliant idea of having auto enrollment and, and you know auto auto enrollment to pensions but a lot of people they don't understand their pensions are investments and B, they have no idea where those pensions are invested so even if you think you're living you know the most socially conscious environmentally conscious life you you can and you are you may not even understand that your you know your retirement fund is invested largely in oil or gas or whatever so I think there's an education piece to be done on on that end as well I don't, Someone know, told I me, think- I don't know who's offering the product, but apparently there's now a vice fund which is
4: invested in arms, tobacco and oil. Vice ventures. Really? it's like,
0: it's not that you don't care, it's that you want to do
3: bad. <laughs> yeah, what are the returns on that? Yeah. <laughs> Evil pensions. <laughs> well, Sorry, Megan. Yeah, no, I was just thinking that... Um, I feel like there's always this conversation around education. People need to be better educated to make better decisions. But I actually think there's a huge onus and a responsibility on the companies. Like, in order for everyone to be experts on all of these different topics, we almost kind of overwhelm people with the the critical things they care about and the things they need to do something about. And at some point, it's like you just have too many browser windows open. It's like, I'm going to focus on these two. (laughs) But actually, as a a responsibility as a a financial services company, even back to the point that was being made earlier about SMEs and payments, uh, to the point that the government was making around helping to reduce, uh, you know, credit spending, increase savings. There's so much as companies that we can do to help automate that and help take mm. these complex decisions and make them simple.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'm talking about, you know, education yeah. around pensions. I mean, obviously, yeah. there needs yeah. to be more education around pensions, full stop yeah, people, yeah. Are, you know, are looking after them properly, etc. But if you said to somebody, I've done all the hard work for you, here's a green one, you yeah. know, it might have slightly lower returns, here's a, mm. a, a brown one which has got some green and some bad stuff in it it'll have this many returns and here's a like your vice one and it's gonna have high returns, but you know you're you're killing bunny rabbits or something.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of the intelligent work that we can do. Like, how do we just simplify the decisions? Not completely automate them, but make it more Mm. tangible and accessible for the everyday consumer without the kind of onerous tasks that they have to do right now to become uh, experts. It was actually when I worked into it. I didn't plan on working on accounting and payroll software. It wasn't like my calling. But when I was there, I went because they they were known for having best-in-class product management. But really, I got into the vision because they're like, you know what? None of these SMEs want to be experts in accounting and payroll If we can make this part of their life simpler, to give them the confidence that they are doing these things correctly, just get it out of the way so that they can focus on running their business, that's huge. It helps them. It reduces anxiety. It's good for the economy. But I think similarly across all of these different products and, uh, you know, from accounting and payroll to savings and credit, the more that we can do to actually make it easy to make good decisions, Mm. to just simplify that, is uh, hugely worthwhile. But the onus goes back to the company.
0: I was going to say, though, is is it not a bit of a sad reality that do people really care? Yeah. I mean, because like, I mean, it's like, it's like PFM. Everybody's like, would you, I mean, in Focus Group, would you use PFM? Yeah, I'll use PFM. And then you're like, but would you really? I mean, like, mm-hmm. do consumers really care enough to make a decision that would be disadvantaged to them from their financial returns? Not when 11 million of them have like 100 pounds in the bank account. Right? I think
4: those are yeah. what they And yeah, that's for it. Point, and, I,
0: and, yeah. I, and, I, and it's hard because I think it's like, I think, I think everybody thinks like thinking about, environmental impact or social impact or is almost like somebody else's responsibility it's like when you're a kid and you think it's like it's mum and dad I think though what know. what what the
4: investment um, firms are trying to say is that actually linking to these things like environmental stuff or women on boards actually, is not a worse return. It's actually a better return because um, you're you're investing in, in the future, really. Yeah. So, but then, I, I but then that why would it not
0: just be? It, it doesn't need to be a um, anything that's tied to that. It's just it's a just, better yeah, return for you because I I think there's a certain. I'm, I mean, I, I'm I know I'm just I'm saying it to be reasonably provocative, but it's like it's the idea where. Um, you know if if everything is not my decision or my thing or I'm uh, I'm doing something active about it and I expect you to kind of deal with the you know worrying about the planet and worrying about otters and whatnot then uh, you know it's a it's a difficult you know, it's people not taking responsibility for me. I,
1: I think there's, sorry, I think there's two points there. One is that, um, I'm completely with you, Olivia, that uh, the returns are, are proven to actually, particularly when you're looking about diversity and boards and things, to actually be better. Um, I think when you're looking at sort of green investments, they do tend to be worse because there just aren't that many products out there. So you can't get the variety and the diversity that you need in order to equal those returns. I may changing, though. All our clients well, are looking at it. Yeah, so I think that's my understanding of what it's been historically, and I hope that it does change. I think the second thing, to your point, David, is that I think a... An increasing group of people who do have money do care. And I think I completely agree that if you've got less than £100 in the bank, you don't care. But there is a middle band who do earn a decent salary and who do have a decent amount of savings and who can say, you know what, I'm going to do things like spend £10 on environmentally friendly washing powder as opposed to £4 on whatever's an offer in Tesco. And I think if those people start to make those decisions, they will be moving the dial and moving the needle. And then I think that the people who are catering to that group will make changes and my hope is that that will spread wider.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing Waitrose get into financial services anytime soon. <laughs> I'm
1: just being I'm trying to be optimistic. There's actually a fintech uh, I really like
4: in this space. So I think you've maybe had on before called Util, mm. um, and they're trying to link both by region and by UN development goals the impact of all kind of companies. So yeah. the, the example they always give is that, um, say, Apple is really good for education in North America, but it's really bad for working practices in China, as an example, and it maps it globally using um, publicly available data sources.
2: Right. So, so I, as I a hope- consumer, you're then choosing between like. Kids in America
0: and yeah. workers in China <laughs> yeah, exactly. and who do you love more and all well, that sort that's of why stuff. Well, it's, it so it's so a trade-off. Like when Sarah was saying it a minute ago, I was like, I mean, how many bunnies are we killing? Because, like, <laughs> <laughs> if it's a few and I get a better return, I mean, like, I don't like bunnies that much.
3: But I think that's the problem. It's a decision fatigue. So there's this really interesting book called Predictably Rational by Dan Ariely, this Harvard behavioral psychologist. And he gives this fascinating example of organ donors. So if on the form it's like uh, – you default to being an organ donor, then most people are organ donors. But if the default is you check nothing and you're not an organ donor, then most people aren't. It's like too complex of a decision. Don't want to make it. Just avoid the default I'm going with. And I think that all these things are, are very important. But the reality is there's just the decision fatigue within the public that could actually happen and lead to a stagnance. And so we do have a responsibility. But I think there's there's so many people that have very little in savings. There's so many people who have you know, just a thousand things to focus on and stresses. And it doesn't always kind of bubble up to the top like climate change in a way maybe it should.
0: Agree. God, we get deep sometimes, don't we? <laughs> Blimey. All right. Well, I think that's probably enough for today. Do we? Does anybody want any other deep things to go on with? No? <laughs> All right. Okay, that wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to our guests for joining us. Where can people find out more about you, Megan?
3: Uh, Twitter at Megan Kaywood.
0: Very good. See? Uh, probably octavasventures.com. Very good. Olivia.
4: Um, AlphaFMC.com or Olivia Vinden on LinkedIn.
2: Sarah?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kaczynski,
0: And you can find me over on LinkedIn. And what do you think of today's news stories? Do let us know over on podcasts at 11fs.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter for more news and content. Uh, You can find it over on 11fs.com forward slash newsletter. Thank you very much for listening this week. Goodbye.